You're listening to a message from Redemption Community Church, a life-giving church in Westchester County, New York. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or follow our messages online at redemptioncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the message. So thank you for having me here today. Uh, as we get into part two of the Built to Last series, are you ready? If you have a Bible, you want to go to Nehemiah chapter two, we're going to look at that in just a moment. We'll put the verses on the screen. But uh, as Jeremy mentioned, I'm from Pittsburgh, and so let me use a Pittsburgh illustration to get us started as we journey into the text today. So, you know, Pittsburgh's most famous football team is the Steelers, Right. And, you know, when people think of the Pittsburgh Steelers now, they think of the six-time Super Bowl champion version. But the Steelers were founded in 1933, and for decades, they were the picture of ineptitude. In fact, it wasn't until 1972 when we made the playoffs for one of the first times. uh, We were playing against the Oakland Raiders, and something happened that was so miraculous that they still call it to this day uh, the most famous play in the NFL called the Immaculate Reception. We actually have sort of a religion around our football team, as you can see. So we were down, it was 13, uh, you know, I think seven to six or something like that to the Oakland Raiders. Terry Bradshaw drops back to pass. He throws it across the middle. It bounces off of an Oakland Raider. Ricochets, almost touches the ground. Then Franco Harris picks up the ball and sprints to the end zone. The game ends. Steelers win. First playoff victory ever. And that then set us on a chain of then moving through four Super Bowls in the 1970s. Okay. Pittsburgh is so excited about that particular moment that happened 50 years ago that in our airport, we actually have a statue This is me yesterday to Franco Harris. Can you see that? And actually, can you see who's right behind him? The president of the United States, George Washington, is next to Franco Harris. Come on, somebody, right? So that just tells you how we value that particular play, change the history of our football team, and really, in some ways, our city. You could take that picture down if you would. All right, so why do I share this? Okay, this particular moment in time reversed... You know, it started a reversal of what was decades of shame in terms of NFL football for us. And and, and when we look at the story of the book of Nehemiah, we are actually reading about something that wasn't just, so we're talking about, you know, addressing life's insurmountable problems in our life. And a lot of times when we study scripture, we do it from a very personalized perspective, and it is a personal story. We know whatever you're facing today, whatever is going on in your life, whatever the generational problems has been in your family, we believe that God can help you rebuild and build something that can last. Can I get an amen from somebody, right? But, but I just want to point out the fact that when we're talking about the story of Nehemiah, we are talking about seven decades where their city in Jerusalem had laid in ruins. The walls had been torn down. The temple had been destroyed. They were carried off into captivity in Babylon. And the thought that anything could ever change in these decade-long problems was absolutely beyond impossible. In fact, some of you who are Bible readers, you might be familiar with this particular prophecy in the Old Testament. You see, there was a a prophet named Ezekiel who in Babylon had some prophetic things to say and some visions about what God could do to restore the nation of Israel. And in, in chapter 37, his most famous probably vision that he has, he has this vision where he walks out into a valley of death. An army uh, of soldiers has died. All that's left in this valley is 
their bones, and the bones, you know, the, the, now have decayed to a point where, where they're dry. And, and you know this, Ezekiel then is called by God to go out into the middle of the valley of dry bones and prophesy to it that, that they would come back to life. And to his, um, uh, you know, complete surprise, all of a sudden, these bones get connected together, right? The, the, you know, the, the leg bone connected to the hip bone, you know, whole, that's the whole song. And they all stood up, and then muscles grew on them and tendons, and they, they were there a vast army. Okay, that was supposed to be a picture for them that the rebuilding of Jerusalem would be a lot like that. That's how they felt about it. That it's, it's you know, so far gone. It's like dead and dry. It's like there's no way that this ever could happen. And so when Nehemiah steps into the story here, he is actually envisioning something that most people had given up on. Like how in the world can any change ever come to this circumstance? So let's just Let's just think about how this could apply to us. We're talking about problems that are so systemic in our family, they, they go back generations. We're talking about problems that are so systemic in our country that it grieves all of us when we look at it. It's, it's problems that are so problematic uh, in, in our world, patterns of addictions and, and struggles and intense, you know, kinds of things that we look at in life and we say, I don't know if anything can ever happen there. I don't know if this person could ever get saved. I don't know if this marriage could ever be restored. I don't know if these bills will ever get paid. I don't know if this situation will ever change. I don't know if the trajectory of this will ever, ever be any different than what it is. That is the kind of hopelessness that uh, Nehemiah was confronting in that story. Okay, so Nehemiah chapter 2 and what we'll start with is this. The main idea I want to present to you is this, that nothing changes until I admit that I need help. Real simple today. Nothing changes until I'm willing to admit this problem is beyond me. This situation I can't handle on my own. Nothing changes until I admit that I need help. Can you say that with me together? Nothing changes until I admit that I need help, and we all need help, right? Just go ahead, turn to your neighbor and say, you need help too, come on. I know you, you need, we all need help, but especially you, right, okay. <laughs> Nothing changes until I admit that I need help. Okay, let's dive into the story now, Nehemiah chapter two, and here's what it says to us, if you'll take us to those verses. In the month of Nisan, the 12th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was being brought to him, okay, remember his job in the kingdom of Babylon, right, was to take, uh, you know, wine to the king. Cupbearer meant he sampled it ahead of time to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. So this has to be a trusted man. Nehemiah is a trusted advisor. And he took wine to the king and gave it to the king. And it says he had not been sad in his presence before. And go ahead, take us to verse 2. So the king asked, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing of sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid. Now, you would say, why would he be afraid of this? Well, in that day, it was a capital offense to be sad in the king's presence. That's probably a sign you have too much power if you can, if you can take somebody out just for that. But, I mean, that's the kind of tyrannical leader he was serving under. And so he, sh he takes the risk of showing himself to be sad before the king. And so the king asked, what's going on? And he said, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what do you want? 
And I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Big, big ask here to this particular king. And the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take? This is a good answer, right? And when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases to the king, may I also have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me with safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal parks, who'll give me all that I need. So look, uh, Nehemiah, he, he gets a yes answer. He doesn't get killed for it. And he decides, let me go for the whole thing. I'm going to ask for the king to pay the bill. Right. I mean, talk about the boldness here. Now he says, could you, could you, could you provide a note with your credit card that I can buy the timber that I need? And because of the gracious hand of God that was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of the trans Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. And the king had sent an army officers and cavalry with me to be able to back me up. Okay. I'm going to give you four things. You know, last week, as Pastor Jeremy started, he gave you four really practical steps to take to start to rebuild. And we're going to build on the Hopefully, this series becomes something really practical for you that if you have something that really needs to change in your life, that you can say, okay, that's the steps I need to take. Let me, let me give you a first point now. The first thing is this. I need to take the risk of confession. So, so let's apply this to us now. J- Nehemiah went to the king and took a major risk, to be sad in his presence, and then to voice what his need was, and then ask for support. Do you know that nothing in your life changes until you admit that you need help? And at some point in time, whatever's going on in your life that is a problem, especially the stuff that's beneath the surface. Do you know a lot of times people are carrying around things with them that they just have never, they've never spoken about to anybody? They, they, they're dealing with depression and they haven't told anybody how bad it is. Or there's an addiction in their life and they've never really shared that it's become a problem. Or a married couple or a couple dating and, and they're, they're having so many conflicts and so many arguments, but when they show up to church and they walk in, they're all smiles like, everything's great here, no need to look too much beneath the surface, right? Whatever is going on in your life that isn't good, oftentimes we have an instinct to hide it because we are afraid of what people think. And honestly, we may not even want to face it ourselves. But there is this first step in the journey of change that requires for us not only to identify what's wrong, but to tell someone, the right somebody, not just to broadcast it on social media that I got a problem, but to tell the right somebody, counselor, pastor, small group leader, mature friend, mentor, hey, I got something going on in my life and I need some help. You know, um, so many people have gone through the recovery process, the 12-step-based recovery process, and this idea that I've used as my main point, nothing changes in my life till I admit I need help, is actually part of the first few steps. I had to come to the place where I admit that I had a problem that was beyond my control and I couldn't manage it on my own. And until you come to that place where you're able to say, this is going on in my life, nothing will begin to change. Let me just say, so many times we are guilty as, as, as folks who go to church 
of just showing up and singing the songs and hearing the message and going out, and we forget that we are not just an event. We are a people, right? We are not just a, a really great service you can attend that gives you motivational talks, but we are a family. And, and look, when you come into your family and, and you are dealing with something, this is the place where it should be safe enough where you can say, hey, over here, my, I just lost my mom. I'm really grieving. It's really affecting me more than you, than you realize. Could somebody pray for me? Look, it's, it's so powerful when we take the risk to confess something in our life that we need to deal with and confess. Let me give you a great verse, such a transformational verse, one of the most powerful verses in the New Testament. James chapter 5, verse 16 says this, therefore, confess your sins to each other. Now, that doesn't sound like a great verse right there. Like, what are you talking about? Okay, it's basically, be transparent with the right people. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be what? Healed. Everybody say healed. Right, we want this for you. We want this for me. We want wholeness in our life. And in order to get there, there has to be this moment where we bring to the surface what we need to bring to the surface so that it can be processed in the right places with the right people so that healing and freedom can come into our life. You know, I think that the devil uses hiddenness, isolation against us. And um, I don't know who said this, but I have quoted it often, that the power of private sin is in its secrecy. Because when it's a secret, the devil leverages it against you. Oh, if anybody knew this, if they really knew what you were thinking, if they really knew what you were doing, if they really knew how you were struggling, they wouldn't, they wouldn't accept you. God, you know, even we think, if I bring this to God, even though we know God knows everything, we're like, you know, we're trying somehow to cope with it rather than to confess it because the devil has tricked us. And you know what happens? The moment we speak what we need to speak to the right people and it comes out of our lips, it's like the strength of that pattern in our life loses its grip because just from speaking it out, we then are able to step into receiving God's grace. Aren't you thankful that the cross of Jesus Christ can cover whatever it is your sin has been and that it can cleanse it from your life and that you don't have to stay stuck in it and the moment you confess it, not only is there forgiveness in your life, but there can be some freedom from that which you've been carrying around with you all along. Yeah. So the first thing we have to do if we want to see real change in our life is we have to take the risk of confession. And, you know, with that comes this great freedom. Nothing changes in my life till I admit that I need help. Let's go to the second thing that Nehemiah does in chapter 2. And that is that he surveys the damage. If you want to give us that point, he surveys the damage. So he admits that it's a problem, right? He says to the king, you can see our city lies in ruins. And then he travels to Jerusalem, and here's what the next few verses tell us that he does. Uh, went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I hadn't told anybody what was going on or what God had put in my heart to do. And there was no, one, no mounts except for the one. So he was the only one on a horse, it says. Okay, the next verse. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate and examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had broke, been broken down, and the gates which had been destroyed by fire. I've been to Jerusalem many times, and actually there are still ruins from the multiple times that Jerusalem has been destroyed. I, I wish I could describe you, to you the size of the rocks. I mean, there's these huge, I don't even know how they got them in place with the technology they had. 
but just the whole place is just a devastated rubble of rocks and burnt over places. And he's riding around now on this. Go ahead and give us that verse again. It's, I don't think we read the whole section yet. Uh, from Nehemiah. But anyway, he's riding around. He's surveying what's going on. He's looking at the damage. And, and so he saw all of the things that had been destroyed by fire. Okay, here's the second thing. If you want to see real change in, in especially generational problems, relational problems, addiction problems, things that are really intense, is you've got to open your eyes and really look at what's broken. Like, you say, but that's too discouraging. I, I know it's bad. I don't need to know how bad. Well, if you're going to actually overcome it, you actually need to take in whatever is actually in the, in the way. And you've got to build a plan for how to recover from it. And so Nehemiah's driving, riding around, driving, riding around on the mount, and he's looking at everything, and he's seeing how bad, bad it is, and he's letting himself just take in the problem because, you know, nothing changes until I admit I need help, but you also say nothing changes until I admit that there's a real problem. And so he sees the problem, and, and he begins to take it in, and this is a step towards change. Now, let me just take a moment, and I'm, I'm going to share with you something that I use as kind of a diagnostic tool for couples that are struggling. Um, and in, in some ways, this is a way for a couple that's going through a problem to identify what the problem is and how bad it is, okay? So often whenever a couple will come to see me, I'm not trained as a marriage counselor. I'm, I'm more of, I guess you'd call a marriage strategist. Um, I, I will help a couple have one session to look at the problem and develop a plan, and a counselor may be a part of that plan. I'm typically not the counselor. I'm more just the person who's doing some strategic thinking around the marriage situation. So when a couple comes to me, I'll typically take out a piece of paper, and I will draw this diagram, if you put it on the screen for us. I will call that the, di the connections diagnostic, and here's, here's the idea. If a couple is 100% intimate and connected in every way, they're at zero, okay? And then, uh, so let's say this is one spouse on this side, one spouse on this side. I will ask them to plot themselves. Where are you on the connections diagnostic? Sometimes I don't even, I don't even need to know this. I can tell. Like they come in and they sit on the couch as far away from each other as they can and one is facing this direction, and one is facing this direction. And I probably say, you're at five, aren't you, right? <laughs> yeah, how'd you know, right, right. Okay, so, so, so I ask them to say, where are you? I'll say, oh, I'm a four, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I, well, I would have said four, three, but maybe I'm a four, two. Okay, so we look at how far apart are you? That's the first question. And then the second question is, what is in between here? What, what is it, that, could we name this? Can we name what it is in between the, if you're both at a four, what created this here? And then there's all kinds of options, right? Hurt, bitterness, busyness, betrayal, my mother-in-law, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> or how you're reacting to in-laws. Okay. That really got a laugh there. Oh my goodness. Okay. So listen, you know what I'm saying? There's a whole bunch of stuff that can go in the middle. Now, what are we doing here? We're actually identifying the specifics. And then, then I ask this question. So now that you see what the problem is, are you willing to work on this? Because whatever the problem is, no matter how big it feels, if you both commit to trying to make it better, it's amazing how fast things can progress. Now, I'm going to do a little tease. I'm sorry, Pastor Jeremy, if I'm ruining something for you, but 
if you know the book of Nehemiah, what we discover later on is they actually rebuild these walls that have been decades long in disrepair in 53 days. So within less than two months, this whole situation changes. It's almost like Ezekiel stepping into the valley and saying, okay, Bones, hear the word of the Lord. Right, so I don't know what it is. Now, maybe let's not take relationships. If we put the diagnostic back up there and we would say, what's the distance between you and freedom? <laughs> or what's the distance between you and recovery? Or what's the distance between you and, and, and you know, whatever it is that you need to experience? Uh, being, being out of debt, right? There, we could probably list, there's probably stuff that's in between me and what needs to happen in my life. And when I identify what it is specifically, that's the beginnings of real change beginning to happen in my life. Nehemiah is brilliant. Let me just tell you, as you study this book, you'll find such great leadership principles in here. But let's go down to point three as we're journeying through chapter two of the book of Nehemiah. Third thing that Nehemiah did here, uh, first, he, he, um, he, he took the risk of confession. He, he told, the, told the king what was happening, and he surveyed the damage. Number three, you need to build a coalition or a network of support. Let's read what he does next in Nehemiah chapter two. It says, then I said to them, you see the, the trouble we're in. He goes back after taking this ride around the walls. Jerusalem lies in ruins and his gates have been burned with fire. Come, let's rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. This is, by the way, sort of this rally cry. Come on, let's do this. We will no longer be in disgrace. And they respond and they say, uh, let's start rebuilding. Come on, let's do this. So it's the husband and wife on the couch together, and they're both, let's work on this, right? It's, it's you and your mentor, and you say, okay, that's what you're dealing with. Let, let's, let's build a plane here. Come on, we can do this. This is, this is what happens now, is that they all decide to begin this good work. Now, I know this sounds overly simplified, but everything, everything in my life starts to change when I admit I need help, and when I start taking steps with the right people in the right places, uh, huge, and enormous, long-term problems can begin to see change as soon as we start to get people around the table working on it together with us. Now, let me just say, one of the things I do when people come to me and we have these counseling moments, when they say, Pastor, I've got something going on in my life and I need to talk to somebody, almost always I put that strategist hat on first. And what I'll often say, because sometimes people overexpect what I can do for them. Like they will come to me and they'll describe a multi-level complicated problem with relationships and past situations and it's all tangled up together. And, and, and they'll, they'll come and they'll take a half hour and they'll pour out their heart and they'll put it on the table in front of me, so to speak. And they'll look at me like, can you solve this? And then they'll be like, so what do you think? And I will often respond like this. Wow, that's worse than I thought. <laughs> and they look at me like, that's not very helpful, Pastor. I thought you were going to pray a magic prayer and just snap your fingers and it would all go away. But that, there is no prayer like that for these kinds of issues. So my response often is like this. This problem is so complicated that to think that one person is gonna be the only person that's gonna help you is to oversimplify your journey. But what we need now is to build a little web around you. Here's what you need. You need a pastor, I'll be that guy. You might need a counselor. Okay, we're gonna identify that. Maybe you need a financial advisor, that might help you. Uh, you probably need to get into a small group. You need one or two really good friends 
that you can go to in the middle of the night if you have to because you might be suffering and struggling. Look, you might need a support group. Uh, There's a whole bunch of things. You need a mentor in some area. Look, you might need a marriage counselor. Look, so we're going to build a whole circle around you so that you have everything that you need to be able to face that. Now, let me just give you a word here. Some of you need to hear this. Nobody will build that coalition of support around your life but you. I wish it could be that somebody else would do it for you, but if you're struggling with something today, nobody is going to do it for you but you. If you want to take initiative on anything, and do you know this is very biblical, let me preach it at you for a minute. James chapter 5, where we read earlier, confess your sins to one another. Just before that, there's this part that says, if anyone of you is sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church. Okay, this is how we want it to read. If anyone is sick among you, the elders of the church will get a word of wisdom in their own room, and God will tell them to go and call you, and that will be the sign that God loves you. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what it says. It says if you are struggling or you are sick, you should take the initiative to raise your hand and say, over here, I need help. And then it says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. You see, actually, the expression of your faith is not to wait for proof that somebody else cares about you or that somehow God loves you. It's actually the expression of your faith that you take the initiative to say, I need someone to help me over here. And and too often, people are coming into a loving environment and waiting for a sign from heaven. Let me just give you, the word of God is your sign from heaven, okay? Call somebody. Look, I'm from Pittsburgh. If you want to call me, call somebody, right? Don't go through what you're going through today alone. Let me just speak on behalf of the whole pastoral team here. They do not want you to suffer through anything on your own. So whatever it is that you're dealing with today, raise your hand, even before you leave the building today, and say, I could use some support over here. Because nothing changes in my life until I'm willing to admit I need help. And that's another way that we do that. Okay, let's keep reading. And we're going to do the last point here now in Nehemiah chapter 4. And it tells us, you'll, you'll learn about this guy throughout the book, Sanballat. And he has an evil, evil brother, Tobiah, and a, another guy named Geshem. And these guys were always trying to stop Nehemiah. And he says, what's this you're doing? You're rebelling against the king. And Nehemiah says, back off. (laughs) Basically, God's going to give us success. We have a promise here. You're not going to stop us. Let me just give you point number four in the journey, and that is that I have to agree in faith with other people. Because, listen, the moment you start to take steps in the right direction, here's what we expect. If I get my life right and I pray a prayer and I talk to somebody and I start to move forward and we get in counseling together, then God will open the heavens and and it will become easy from here and everything will be perfect. But let me just tell you, the moment you start to take steps of faith, the devil will rise up against you because he does not want to see you healed, saved, free, whole, repaired. He doesn't want to see walls rebuilt. And so listen, you can expect it. The moment you step out in faith, there will be pushback against your life. But here's what Nehemiah rose up to say. Our God has been gracious to us to this point. He has given us a promise that we're going to be broke. We're going to be able to break through. We are not backing down no matter how many sand ballots and Tobias you send our way because we believe that God has victory in store for our lives. Come on, somebody. 
Yeah. I, I, I know this was um, a message a little bit up in your face, okay? <laughs> so I'm a guest and I'm coming in and I'm saying, come on, confess it to somebody, right? Raise your hand and say you need help. Build a coalition around your life. Stand up in faith, but have other people agree with you. Um, but but here's, here's how we'll conclude. You know, Jeremy mentioned earlier that today we celebrate the uh, day of Pentecost. You can read about it in Acts chapter two. It's this moment where the Holy Spirit is poured out. Remember that Jesus just about 10 days prior had ascended into heaven and left the disciples all by themselves. And they were trying to figure out what do we do next? They were given this mandate to take the gospel to the end of the world. And Jesus said to them, don't leave Jerusalem. Don't try to do this thing that I'm challenging you to do on your own, but wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit that my Father promised. And when the, you receive power, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be able to carry out my mission. Be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Here, here's what Jesus was saying to them. Hey guys, you need help. <laughs> Remember we said, nothing changes in my life until I admit I need help. Jesus was saying to the disciples, look, I've been with you guys. I know you, you need help. Don't try to do this on your own. Let me give you the best helper you could ever receive. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And when the Spirit of God comes into your life, He is going to change you from the inside out. And He's going to give you power to face and do things you could never do on your own. And so when they were all gathered together on the day of Pentecost in one place, the Spirit of God was poured out on them in power. And the world has never been the same. So on this Pentecost Sunday... Where should we begin but to look to heaven and say, God, we need help, we need help, we need help. And, and then to open ourselves up and say, Holy Spirit, we need you more than anything else. Can we all stand up together and the worship team can come back? And I want to just challenge us before we go talk to anybody or confess to anybody or build a coalition around our lives for problems we're facing. Can you just turn your face toward heaven right now all across this room? And if you feel comfortable lifting up a hand toward God or putting some hands out in front of you, whatever, especially if you need God to move in your life right now. And here, here we, we now just stand before you and Holy Spirit. We need you in our life today. We need you, we need you, we need you, Lord God. Yeah, come on, just in your own way, whisper something. If you need to pray for somebody or something, just, just tell them right now, right where you're standing. Here we are, Lord. Here we are, Lord. Just like, just like on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out, we pray in this room, in our lives right now today, let there be the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Thank you, Jesus. Now, we're going to sing a song in a moment that talks about the Holy Spirit falling like rain upon our souls. I just want to pray over you. Would you put your hand on your chest right now? I pray now that the Spirit of God would flood your life, that God would bring you healing on the inside, that He would free you from things that are holding you back, that He would give grace to you where you're discouraged. And that he would release into your spirit his peace, which passes understanding. But even more than just surviving, that he'd empower you now to become all that he's called you to be. We pray that in Jesus' name together. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. If you'd like to connect with us or learn more about our church, please visit us online at redemptioncommunitychurch.org. We hope you can listen or join us next week.